If you have your Bible, let's open up together to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be in the last verse of Romans 11. If you don't have a Bible, get one of the black Bibles on the end of the pews, and it should be on page 947 in that Bible. And if you don't have one, just keep it. It's our gift to you, that Bible that you just picked up. Well, let's read together Romans 11, starting uh, in verse 33, even though verse 36 is where we'll be, but we want to remember kind of what this is, as it's wrapping up really the first 11 chapters of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then here's our verse for today. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We, we, uh, we need to know and ought to know and want to know just as human beings, not just as Christians, but as human beings, we want to know what's the point of everything. And it comes up all the time. I feel like I've told a similar story to this before, but it came up, it happened again. And so I'm just going to tell you what happened. I was listening to a podcast. And the podcast that I was, was listening to the other day was, uh, it, it was not by Christians, just unbelievers, but explaining some scientific concepts that I've just, I kind of like to know things sometimes. And so I was, I was listening to it. They were discussing the, the idea of uh, how the human cells in the body replace themselves over time. But then even though that happens, that eventually they, they give out and we die. And just kind of talking about how that happens. And that led one of these, these unbelieving podcasters to just start getting really philosophical and start saying, well, but then what, what's the point? What's the point of it all? And he said, as I was studying this, it just really hit me in, in my mind. Like, why is life here? Why are humans here? Why does life exist? Is, is the point of all of this just so that carbon-based life forms can pr- continue to produce more carbon-based life forms? And, and if so, why does that even matter in the first place? And, and he got very, very philosophical. Now, for one thing, the fact that he, he recognizes that that's an important question kind of under, undercuts his whole worldview. He was approaching that from a worldview that we call naturalism, or sometimes it's called materialism, which is the worldview that there is no such thing in all of reality except for the natural material world. Sometimes it's called atheism, but they, they may or may not have a stance on God, but just the idea, so the starting reality, well, the matter and energy, that's all there is. Now, if you have that worldview and then you turn around and say, but what is the point? This must be for something. You're kind of revealing right there that you know that you ought not to have that worldview. You know that you're made for something greater. And, and it's a suppressing of truth and unrighteousness is what Romans 1 says about it. So you should know that. But I, I, as I heard that, I just wanted to jump through my earbuds, and I just wanted to, I wanted to get right in front of his podcast microphone and just tell him face to face, here's the point, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's why there is something rather than nothing. That's why there is life rather than non-life. It's because there is a real point to everything, and it's God who has created us and who sustains us and who is the end goal of all of us to, to know him and enjoy him and glorify him in all things. And that's what this verse says. This verse is really kind of wrapping up. You know, if, if you wanted to know what, what is the whole message of the Bible, you could just say Romans 11.36 is it. It's that from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. That's it, right there. We need to know this. Everybody needs to know this. But let's think about this this verse and where it comes in the Scriptures. It is in context. It is in context of the whole book of Romans because, as I said, Romans 33, or 11.33 through 36 is, is kind of summing up, uh, putting this, this big cap on what's come in the entire book of Romans up to this point. As we've, we've seen that there was a beginning to this letter, the first 17 verses of chapter 1 that were an introduction both to, uh, to the church in Rome but also an introduction to the gospel itself, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That was the introduction. 
And then we came after that as, as verse 118 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, sums up the reality of why we need the gospel, the fact that everybody is a sinner before God, whether you are a, a, a Jew or a Gentile, whether you grew up hearing the Bible all the time or grew up on a desert island with no word of God ever reaching your ears, it, he makes it very, very clear in those chapters that everybody is a sinner before God who is absolutely condemned and hopeless in their sin. So then what do we do? Well, then the good news, not that it was absent before that, but the good news really comes in starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 4. Well, here's the good news for both Jew and Gentile and for all nations. The good news is that you can be saved from your sin, even though we were condemned in it. Be saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And it's very simple and it's very powerful, and it's the true way of salvation that's offered to people of all nations. And then, for, for those of us who believe, he goes on in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 to speak of assurance of our salvation, that once we have received that grace by faith in Christ, that we're going to stand in that grace, and that we can be confident of that, even though we still walk through this world with the reality of our ongoing battles against sin, which could make us think, I sinned, I must not be a Christian. And even though we walk through the world with these battles, I guess battle might not be the right word, maybe sometimes, but with these sufferings that we face in this life. Sickness, the reality of death, all kinds of suffering that there would be, that we can't look at that and say, well, because I'm suffering, God must not be on my side anymore. No, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is saying that as those who have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ by faith, that we have assurance that even if we have sinned, even if we have suffered, that God is for us and not against us, and nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Starting in Romans chapter 9, he came to the question, and this is Romans 9, 10, and 11, this puzzling question of why have the majority of the Jewish people rejected the Jewish Savior? And, and with the answers in Romans 9 that it has mainly to do from God's perspective with his sovereign electing purpose to save some and to condemn others, to leave them in their sin. In Romans 10, he addresses that from the human perspective, that, that those who are not saved have chosen to remain in their sin and to reject Christ. And in Romans 11, giving this beautiful hope that there could be a future, whether for Jews or Gentiles, or this potential future of a great turning of those who don't believe to faith in Jesus, to be brought back in to the people of God, the great olive tree. And all of that is difficult to wrap our minds around. And he said even this, this crazy hard-to-understand verse in Romans 11.32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That it's only sinners that he saves. And he has a plan in all of this to save sinners, and we don't get it. Even though it's so simple that a child can understand you're a sinner. Jesus came to die for sinners. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. It is so simple, but when we start to zoom out in the great plans of God and how he is conducting all of these things and how he is going to redeem uh, so many and, and condemn so many, we just say the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So that's where we have ended up, but it all comes down to this verse, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. What he's done here is he said in all of these things, in the reality of sin, the reality of the gospel, God's saving grace, the assurance that we have in Christ, the mysteries of God's plans for the future, in all of this, our hearts should be turned to praise. That's where he's come down to. He has turned from just explaining the concepts to saying, in light of all of this, let's recognize that the whole point of everything is God, that God's glory is the reason for everything, 
And let's submit to that purpose by saying an amen and by glorifying God. So let's think through these concepts that are here in this verse. For from him, let's start there, from him are all things. From him, through him, to him. What does that mean? Well, there's been different theories over the years. One of the theories that was popular in, uh, in some of the early centuries of the church was that maybe this is a Trinitarian verse. Maybe from him means from God the Father. Maybe through him means through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe to him means to the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I kind of appreciate the whole idea of trying to match up threes to the threeness in the oneness of God, and I, I kind of, you know, I, I, those guys are very smart, but I just don't kind of, I don't really think that that's what this verse is actually saying, and it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to say from the Father, through the Son, to the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't make sense, and I don't think it's what it means. I think it's talking about all of God himself. There's also been others who have noticed that what Paul says in this verse and the way that he phrases that is kind of similar to some statements of Greek philosophers trying to sum up uh, everything in the whole world. And, and then from that, they would say, oh, well, the, Paul is just like a Greek philosopher. He's just borrowing from Greek philosophy. This is just a mishmash religion, kind of drawing from here and there. Well, no, that's not, that's not the case. If there are similarities here, and if, even if those similarities are intentional on Paul's part or on the Holy Spirit's part, who's breathing this out through Paul, uh, the intentionality is not to say, well, we're drawing from Greek philosophy. The intentionality is to say, hey, Greek philosophy, we have the answer you don't have. We know the God you don't know. It is this God who is over all of your gods and over all of your philosophies. He is the one who it is from him and through him and to him are all things. But what these three words mean is that God is the creator, the sustainer, and the point of everything. From him, through him, and to him. So let's think first about all things being from God. That God is the creator of all things. We're used to everything that we know of being contingent on something else. Being dependent on something else. Being finite. Having a beginning point and having an ending point at some time. And so it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our minds around the fact that God is not any of those things. He doesn't have a start point. There's not something else that God depended on. There wasn't all of these sort of parts floating around that got put together by some uh, external force that made him into God. He is just, he just is God. And all things are from him. Two weeks ago, uh, the last time that we were in Keyport with our evangelism group, um, I was sitting at the, the prayer station table. Um, the way we, we set it up, and this is a good way, was what we're going to do again this afternoon, pray for us. We've got the prayer station table in the, the middle of the walkway where we are completely non-confrontational. We just say, how can we pray for you? And then we let the confrontational people go down to the end. And uh, so it's kind of neat how we can, we can have two approaches like that. Um, so, uh, but this, this man came up to me at the, the prayer station table and uh, said that he wanted to be prayed for, which I was just delighted by, and, and that he loves to talk about religion, loves to talk to religious people and find out what they believe. And so I, I just started out by saying, well, that's, that's very interesting. What do you believe? And he told me that, that he believes that God uh, must have some kind of a beginning. God must have come from somewhere because everything comes from somewhere. And that he believes that God is a force or an energy. And that that energy is throughout everything and that that energy is in all of us. Now this is the kind of thing that you, you think up on your own. But you're not the first one to do it if you think up something like that. But I just asked him, well, well that's very interesting. So wh where did that energy, you say that it started at some point. Where, when did it start and what started it? He was like, well, I don't know. I said, well... Wouldn't you want to find that out? Because if, if you're calling this thing God and it came from somewhere, wouldn't there be something that started it that you ought to be worshiping that as God instead? Uh, and he said, well, what is God? Which I think was supposed to be a trick question. And I said, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Which you can give that answer to if you come to the Baptist catechism classes that we're going to start July 2nd. 
All of my children could give that answer. They're just singing a little song in their heads. But we need to know what God is. And, and all of these kinds of things come up. Where, but, but, but all of this was just because this man and many of us have trouble wrapping our minds around the fact that God has no beginning. He just is. That's even what he called himself. I am. He is in himself. God is the first cause of everything else. All things are from him. And you got the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And it's because of the first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. God was there before anything else. God is the unmoved mover. There are all of these different theories and philosophies of where the world came from, and none of them other than theism, the reality of the one God who started it all, none of them can answer where everything came from. Now, some people, for some reason, are satisfied with the idea that everything began in a big bang, and I don't know why they're satisfied with that, because it just asks the question, what made that bang go bang? And if, if all of the matter and the energy in the universe were condensed into that singular space, somehow, well, where did they come from? Where were they before? Where, where did all this come from? And then other scientists slash philosophers would, would come along and say, well, uh, okay, well, the, the real reality is that there are infinite universes, and just has, this just happens to be one of them. Well, okay, well, who made all the other infinite universes? You see, there's, just, there's no good answer to this question where everything came from unless you recognize the reality that it, all things are from him. It had to come from somewhere. Even if you think that the universe is infinite, that time has been going on for an infinite amount of time, how do we ever get to this point in time? You wouldn't. Now, all of that, you know, we, you, you could go down a lot of rabbit trails with that, but we don't have to because we know the reality all things are from him. He is the first cause, the first mover, and he is the creator. Not just somebody who kind of flicked his finger and kicked everything off, but he actively created all things. Because it doesn't just say in the beginning God, it also says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so all the things that you see there in the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God created just like it says. Just like it says. He created the heavens, he created the earth, and as we look around at all of these things, we can praise God in the same way that the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 in heaven are praising God as, G as John looks on. They sing this song, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Wow. We can say, God, all things are from you. And so glory to God. By the way, God didn't just, just uh, say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create something by getting these materials and these materials and I'm going to put it together in this way. No. God commanded things that did not exist to exist. There was no such thing as light. And God said to the non-existent light, be. Let there be light. And it had to obey him by coming into being. And, and there was light. This is how God created, was by the word of his power. Colossians 1.16 says specifically that it wasn't just, uh, just God the Father doing the creation. It was also God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It says of the Son of Jesus in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so when he says all things here, from him are all things, he clarifies in Colossians 1.16, not even just the, day, the things in the six days of creation that were listed there, not just the things of nature that we look around and see. And it's amazing to consider those things because there are things that are fairly simple to understand, like matter and energy We've got our lights turned on right but then there's also something out there called antimatter that i don't understand there's gravity which nobody understands all of these things all the way from the tiniest things all the way out to the end of space and all the way down to the seat that you're sitting in right now it is from god 
God is the creator and Christ is spoken of. And Colossians 1.16 is the creator, but it doesn't just speak of those things there. It also says things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. God also created the whole spiritual realm, the realm that involves angels, the realm that involves both the elect angels, those who remained in service of God and remain in service to God today, as well as the reprobate angels, Satan and the other third of the, the angels who fell and are now functioning as devils, demons against God. God created it all. Even the things that are uncreated eternal concepts are from God. Now, what you, you say, well, what, what am I talking about? Well, things like logic, things like mathematics, things like goodness, truth, and beauty. These are things that you can't say, well, here is this thing, and you can't say that the number two came into being at some point. It, what, what these are, though, we, we can't think of those things like logic. We can't think of them as some sort of a system that is outside of God, that God has to work within. Those things exist because they are from God. They have existed eternally in the mind of God. So that we can say even, even the whole idea of goodness, it's not something that is outside of God that some greater God made up and imposed on our God. It is eternally from within his own nature. And so from him are all things. Now get this. That's a lot of stuff we just said that's from God. We could keep going because it says all things, right? I had the same problem in Romans 8.28 where he works all things together for our good. And I, there's a lot of things to list, right? But, but here's a thing that, that is from God. You. You. You exist because God made you, and he made you in his image, and he made you for his glory. That's why you're here. That's why you're able to think and reason. That's, that's why you got up this morning, and that's why you have the whole history that you have. You are part of what is listed here when it says, from him and through him and to him are all things, including, fill in the blank, your name here. God created us. We didn't create God. God created us. Now, knowing that God created us and knowing that God is the creator, that's not something that in itself saves anybody from their sins. You can be able to prove to someone up and down that God exists and that he created the world, and yet they still be lost in their sins because they have not submitted their hearts in faith to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins. So knowing that God is the creator is not the same thing as being a saved person. There are a lot of people out there who know that God is the creator and yet don't submit to him in faith. But it is part of faith. It is something that you must know. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so it's very important to know that you and all things are created by God, and it's going to affect the way that someone lives and the way that someone thinks to know, I am not of myself, I am not just of the dirt or of stardust, that God created me and all things for his purposes. God is not just the creator, God is also the sustainer and the director of all things. It says, from him and through him are all things. That's what we're talking about here. Number two on the back of your bulletin. You're following your outlines, right? I hope. God, the sustainer of all things, because all things are through him. So God didn't just create everything. It's, it's also that God upholds everything. Now, no, nothing would be here if God hadn't created it, but also nothing would be here if God weren't sustaining and upholding it actively right now. That's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because when we, quote, create something, by the way, our creation of something is not the same thing as God's creation of something. You may be a creative person in that you can think up interesting things and make interesting art, but you're making it out of something, and you're making it reflect ideas that already exist maybe in interesting ways, 
But God thought up stuff and just made stuff out of nothing. So we don't create in the same way that God does. But even when human, human beings have, have made something, that something, it can kind of take a life of its own without the, the person who made it. So there are still today, every day all over the world, millions, billions of light bulbs that still turn off and on every day despite the fact that Thomas Edison died a long time ago. He doesn't have to still be around for the light bulbs to work. Or those, those uh, men who gathered in New Mexico for the Manhattan Project and came up with the atomic bomb, they may have wanted to put lots of kinds of constraints on what kinds of weapons could be made and what kinds of, of arrangements there would be for how these could be used and who could have them and who couldn't have them, but it's just going to take a life of its own apart from them. They're not around, but those weapons still are. There's people today who are really worried, and I think part of the worry is just because reporters are worried that they're going to lose their jobs, and reporters report on what they're worried about, but artificial intelligence, right? Everybody's saying, we don't know where this is going to go. Even some of the, the, uh, the people who are de- actively developing artificial intelligence right now put out a letter last week uh, and, and calls to Congress saying, please stop us from doing this. <laughs> it's pretty funny to me. But there's the idea there that, well, this, this could take a life of its own. We don't know what it's going to do. That doesn't happen with God's creation. That is impossible with God's creation because all things are not just from him, but they are through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1.3. And speaking specifically in Hebrews 1.3 about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. It says in Psalm 75, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. And it says in Colossians 1.17 that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. If it weren't for God actively right now holding us together, for Christ upholding the universe by the word of his power, if he were to stop doing that for a moment, we would cease to be. We would disintegrate into nothingness. And he doesn't just keep us together in terms of keeping our bodies going and all that kind of stuff. He, he also is, when it says through him, it's also saying that he is directing everything. This is talking about God's providence over all things. God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. That's what the Baptist Catechism says. You see this all over Scripture. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. God says, or excuse me, the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Isaiah 46.10 says that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God has a purpose that he will accomplish. All things are through him. A lot of the things that God does, I dare say most of the things that God directs in this universe and in our lives, he does through means, through a way of doing it means that are kind of normal most of the time. Means like, for example, gravity. It's just kind of there all the time. And we don't think about it, but God set us up to keep us from flying out into space. He uses that means, but he uses other means too, all kinds of things. People going and with their human intentions, the way that human affairs go in this world, God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God also can accomplish purposes apart from means. A lot of times, the way that this works out in the scriptures is through miracles that God does, where he simply steps in and intervenes and does something apart from anybody or anything else in creation doing it. A great example of this would be the virgin conception of Jesus. There was no means. God just did it. And Jesus came in the flesh. And sometimes God doesn't just work through means or he doesn't just work apart from means. Sometimes he works against means. 
because he's going to accomplish his purposes. Just think of what, what was Paul's purpose when he was on the road to Damascus. His purpose was to persecute Christians when he got there. Well, God worked against his means. God worked to rescue those Christians who were going to be persecuted, and not only that, but to save Paul's soul despite his will that he did not want to submit to Jesus' lordship. Amazing. But God directs it all. All things are from him and through him. As Daniel 4, verse 35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All things, and again, consider that this means you. He upholds you by the right hand or by the the word of his power. It's funny that, that some people can deny that God exists because if it were true, they would spontaneously combust. But God is so, so merciful, isn't he? Still sending the rain on the just and the unjust. And for us who know God, who love God, who are called according to his purpose, whose faith is in Jesus Christ, we know that he is our preserver. We know that he is working things for our good, and it's an opportunity to give him glory in all things. One of the things that you can give God glory for, because all things are from him and through him, you can give him glory for the things that you do. That's the whole way that the things that we do as Christians are set up and and presented to us in the Scriptures. Now, when we do something that is sinful, it is completely our own fault. When we do something that is good, it is completely to the glory of God alone. That's just the way the Scripture lays it out. I could go to a lot of verses, but I won't right now except for this one. Philippians 2.13 for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we see God has worked in me, through me, we can say, thank you, God. Not look at me, but thank you, God, because God has created me, God is sustaining me, God is working through me for his good pleasure. Thank you, Lord. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he's also the goal, the end goal of all things. Because all things are not just from him and through him, all things are also to him. It says in Revelation 1, verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He says, from beginning to end, It's all about me. I'm the point. That's what God says. Comes out of the mouth of Jesus in Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And when he says there, the beginning and the end, a way that you could put that is I am the one who kicked everything off to start with, and I am the end, finish line, goal of everything to end with. He is the creator, he's the sustainer, and he is the goal, the point. He's the goal of all things. Why is there something rather than nothing? To glorify God. And he is the reason why you're here, and he is the goal and the end point of you. God will receive glory for all eternity in you. He will. For those of us who love God through faith in Jesus Christ, there's an interesting thing that, that is said. Romans 8, 28, I already mentioned it, but it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there, there could be a conundrum here if you're trying to put this together. What's the point? Why is God working all things together for our good, as it says in Romans 8, 28, or is God working all things together for his glory, as it says in Romans 11.36? Which one is it? Well, the answer is for us who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose, thus who have faith in Jesus, both of those things are the same thing. He is working all things together for his glory, which for us who love him and are called according to his purpose is also for our good. 
for all eternity. If you have faith in Jesus, there is no difference in eternity between what is good for you and what is glorifying to God. It will, for all eternity, work together for both at the same time. But what about those who don't love God? And we have to have some humility in this and recognize that that was all of us at some point. But what about those who will continue in their lack of love for God? Those who will continue in their sin, in their impenitence, in, their, in not having faith in Jesus. Those who are going to suffer for all eternity in eternal conscious torment under the wrath of God in hell. How will God get glory there? Well, God will get glory in his justice. God is going to be the end goal, the end point of all things, including those who think that they will get glory for themselves by rejecting him. God will show his perfect justice and be glorified forever and ever. But praise God for us that he has chosen to show his glory in us by his grace. Here's what it it says in in Proverbs 16.4 about the wicked. The Lord has made us everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. But, again, for us who love God and are called according to his purpose, it's for our good. So, God will get glory in every human being, either for his eternal justice or his eternal grace. And it's all wrapped up in this. To him be glory forever. Amen. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it's to him. It's not to me. It's not to you. It's not to the angels, even. It's not to the great rulers and kings of the earth. It's to him. To him alone be glory. Jesus taught us this in the way that he taught us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer that we prayed together and sang together today, the first petition, the first prayer request in the Lord's Prayer is this, hallowed be your name. Now, every other request that's in the Lord's Prayer, you could think of a way to to rightly say it to a human being in certain circumstances. Even your kingdom come, maybe you could be saying to, to a rising king in some country that has a monarchy, we look forward to you being king. Or, or forgive us our debts. You could say to somebody, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. There's ways you could say this, except that first one, you could not possibly say it to anybody else. Hallowed be your name. If I walked up to you and I said, hey, Mike, which I could say, because that's pretty much everybody in here. Hey, Mike. <laughs> say, Mike, I have something that I want you to do for me today at church. And you, generic Mike, <laughs> would say... <laughs> You would say, well, okay, pastor, what, what is it? What do you want me to do at church today? And, and I say, hallow your name. How would that make sense? Uh, and Mike might look at me weird and say, well, what, what do you mean, hallow my name? I say, well, make it known in this place today that you are great and that you are glorious and that you are to be worshipped and to be revered as holy, not here only, but also among all nations and among every power in heaven and on earth. Can you do that for me today, Mike? Can you hallow your name? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for any being in all of creation except, and I shouldn't even say in creation, in existence, except for God It is right for God to hallow his name. Why is that? Because sometimes when we hear this, we can think, well, that's that's awfully arrogant of God. That's awfully strange for God to be all about his own glory. I I don't like people who are all about their own glory. Well, that's because they're wrong to do that. God is not. God is not. God actually is the all-glorious one. If God were to say anything other than that, if he were to say anything other than the fact that he was the all-glorious one of all of reality, God would be a liar. And if he were a liar, he would not be the all-glorious one. 
if God had a purpose to lift up anyone or anything to be admired more highly than himself, then God would be in the wrong because there's nothing worth that. And God wouldn't only be in the wrong, but he would be robbing us of eternal joy because he would be pointing us to enjoy something that is not the thing that is most highly to be enjoyed. God would be telling us to glorify and enjoy something that would not ultimately be satisfying in the way that God is satisfying. So God is right to be all about his own glory, and that in itself is good for us. Because we get, as believers in Christ, to glorify him and enjoy him in the full forever and ever. Now, another conundrum here. Why then, if God is all about his own glory, and, and not, not to us but to your name be the glory, why, why does it say in Romans 8.30 that those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified? Why does the Bible use terms like that? Why do we speak of heaven and our eternal life with Christ as glorification, that he will glorify us? Does that not then diminish the glory of God? Well, you put all this together, and what's happening here, he's not saying that we're going to be lifted up to be worshipped. That's not it at all. It's that there is going to be a time where we are doing exactly what I just said, where we are face-to-face with Christ, enjoying him in full forever. That's glory. And so whatever that looks like for us, whatever it is that we experience in the day of judgment when we are openly acknowledged and acquitted before all creation, whatever that glorification feels like or looks like, and some of it is just a mystery that God hasn't told us very much about, but whatever it looks like in full, it's going to be ultimately for the glory of God alone. We're going to be standing in his glory, looking at his glory, taking the crowns that we're given them and and casting them before his feet. That's the picture that you have in Revelation all for his glory, ultimately for his glory, forever and ever. It was a subversion of the glory of God that led Satan and the third of the, demon, or third of the angels to, to rebel against God and to become demons. They, they wanted to overtake the glory of God. It was that same kind of, of a feeling that ended up drawing man, Adam and Eve, into sin. God is keeping you from this knowledge of, of uh what is it? the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, he's keeping you from this. He, he wants you not to be like him. You can be like him. You can step up and be glorious like God. No. No. That's sin. God is the one who is to hallow his name, and we need to be on the side of that. God, by the way, whether you actively glorify him or not, he has all the glory already. He has been all-glorious from eternity past. Before there was ever any other being in existence to glorify him, he was already in glory and admiring himself as a triune God, enjoying himself. It is a gracious thing that he's created all things and created us to be brought together into this grand scheme of his glory. We should thank him for that. He has glory in himself already, but it's also our purpose to glorify him, to ascribe to him that glory that's already his. Here's what it says in Psalm 79.9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. You hear what that is? That's a, that's a prayer to God. Save me from my sins for the purpose of your glory, for the glory of your name. That's why God saves sinners. That's the ultimate purpose why God saves sinners. You could also come up with lots of other reasons that it's good for us, that we don't want people to go to hell, all kinds of things that are subordinate purposes. But the great and grand purpose of God's salvation of us as sinners is this. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake... 
For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. There you go. God is to be glorified and enjoyed in himself. Now, if, if you have, if you sometimes, you come across discussions of the nature of God, maybe something about God's attributes or something about God's being a trinity or something else about God, if you have a tendency in your own heart to hear those kinds of things and to kind of just turn your brain off to it, this is sometimes a temptation for some, some Christians to, to say, well, I, that's just abstract stuff. I'm going to turn my brain off to that, and I'm going to go look for something more useful. I, I should clarify, knowing God rightly is, is life-changing. There's going to be all kinds of useful stuff that flows out from that in our lives. But there's a problem in our hearts if we're hearing the truth about God and because we can't connect it in our brains to some other purpose that we shut it down. Knowing God is the purpose. It is the purpose. It, whatever it is that you get excited about most in your life, you don't have to ask, well, what's the greater purpose of that thing? When, when you go to see your favorite band in concert, you're not asking yourself, well, what's the purpose of my being at this concert? When you go and, and you see your favorite team win the Super Bowl, maybe some of that, that'll happen to somebody someday, I don't know. Where we live, who knows? But when you see that, you don't have to think, well, what's the greater purpose? <laughs> but there is a greater purpose, and the greater purpose is this, it's God himself. And if you're saying, well, what's the greater purpose of knowing God? What's the greater purpose of understanding the Trinity? What's the greater purpose of wrapping my mind around God's decrees and providence and his attributes? There is no greater purpose. It is an end in itself to know and love and enjoy God, to glorify God. And so a heart that loves God as glorious doesn't need to know about God for some other supposedly more useful purpose. We, we need to approach the knowledge of God as a means not to some other end, which would be idolatry, but as, a, as an end in itself. Now, I recognize that not every teacher who's teaching about the attributes of God is equally interesting. There are teachers way, way more interesting than this out, here, out there. But something in our hearts as Christians is going to be stirred up that's the God I love. I love to know and enjoy that God. And it says, we will glorify him forever. To him be glory forever. You know how long forever is? It's a really long time. If you have ever thought about it and thought you, you wrapped your mind around how long forever is, you haven't thought hard enough. It is forever. And all things will be to his glory forever. You know what that means? No matter how long it takes before Jesus comes back, the time between when God said, let there be light, and the time when God brings all things together for his purposes in Christ is going to be nothing in comparison to the eternity that we as believers will be in the pure presence of God, glorifying him forever. The amount of time that you have in this world where you're battling against sin and suffering is going to be nothing in comparison with eternity. For those who are not in Christ, that ought to make you consider, I want eternity in heaven and not in hell. And that ought to make you consider the path to be in the full enjoyment of God forever and ever is by faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead and is king forever and ever. Look to Jesus. And for us who know Christ, it ought to make us look at the same thing. To say, wow, the glory of God to come into this little bitty finite space for these finite creatures and to give his own life and to suffer the fullness of the wrath that I deserve for my sins, 
and to rise from the dead and to be my king, to take me in to his glory forever and ever. Praise God. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of Daniel? What is the chief end of you? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So submit your heart to that fact. I love what John Calvin said about this. He said, How unreasonable would it be for creatures whom he has formed and whom he sustains to live for any other purpose than for making his glory known? It hence follows that absurd and contrary to reason and even insane are all those sentiments which tend to diminish his glory. Don't be unreasonable, don't be insane. Set your heart to glorify God. And that's where we come with the very last word of chapter 11. Amen. Or amen. Those of you who are more formal. What is that word? It's a word of being in agreement. It's the same word that Jesus repeated twice whenever he said his sayings that began with truly, truly. Amen, amen. I definitely say this to you. He's saying in that amen, let it be so. I am in agreement, and let that be the reality in our own hearts. Let our own hearts shout amen to the reality that all things are from him, through him, and to him, and to him be the glory. I wonder, is it the desire of your heart to glorify God? Does that idea, does the idea of God move you to worship him from the heart? It should. It should move us to that amen because it's the whole reason we exist. And it's the whole reason we will exist for all eternity. And it's all and only through Jesus Christ. I'll just let you in right now, even though we're on the last verse of this section of Romans, I'll let you in on the secret of what the last verse of Romans, the whole book says. It says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being the God who is over us. God, you are the one who is eternally existent in yourself, who eternally is one God in three persons with realities about yourself that are and forever will be too deep for us to comprehend. You are eternally glorious. You needed nothing. And yet, in your sovereign, good, gracious plan, you made everything. All things are from you, and you uphold everything. You uphold us, and you have set yourself as the goal of all things. And so I pray that you would align our own hearts and will to the purpose of you, the creator, and the purpose that you have created us for, to love you, to enjoy you, to glorify you forever. God, I pray for those whose hearts right now are opposed to that will, whose hearts are lost in sin, whose hearts are set on the glory of something other than you, most likely on the glory of themselves. I pray that you would grant them forgiveness as they look to Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take sins like that upon himself. I pray that you would save them by your grace and turn them for the purpose that they've been created for. And we pray for all of us that you would help us to cry out with that amen to you be glory forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.